Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, quite a few topics to touch on today and the Showtime Boxing podcast, including an upcoming Showbox card in Kansas, uh, an upset on Saturday night in Indio, California, and boxing news around the world. But first, we'll focus on Saturday night's Showtime Championship boxing card, headlined by Javante Tank Davis, who had said if it was cold at the Dignity Health Sports Park, he was going to spend as little time in the ring as possible. It must have been sub-zero, because <laughs> Davis certainly in no interest in hanging around, blowing out Ugo Ruiz in the first round in the main event on Saturday night, Eric. Yeah, uh, he's. I think Gervonta spent more time getting to the ring than he spent uh, actually fighting in the ring. So, and, and I, I do want to focus on that before we get to all the in-ring action that, that we have to discuss, and there is plenty of it. Uh, but I think we need to offer our highly professional analysis of Tank <laughs> Davis's ring walk Saturday night. He had the Thriller playing. He had yes. the dancers and the smoke. He came out in the red Michael Jackson jacket. It was a great concept. The execution wasn't quite as great as the concept because Javante wasn't dancing along or anything. That was a, a weird moment where I kind of missed Adrian Broner's like over the top dancing. I th- think that sort of uh, attitude would would have fit there. He was just sort of smiling as he walked uh, past all the uh, zombie dancers. Uh, seemed a little off to me, but all in all, good entrance, memorable entrance. But I have one major criticism of a huge missed opportunity. Okay, how, how do you do a 1980s Michael Jackson theme? and not show up in the ring with one shiny silver boxing glove. Uh, I mean, come on, it's so obvious. I, you, you know, I, you, go, you go with a plain color on the one hand, you know, maybe black or white. It doesn't matter if it's black or white. Uh, but then on the other nice. hand, <laughs> thank you. Uh, on the other hand, sparkly silver. Uh, and, and so I was thinking about this as a criticism, and then I remembered, Javante was born in 1994. I was just going to say. <laughs> it's not on him to know which Michael Jackson references are essential, but the older members of his team really uh, dropped the ball there, in my opinion. <laughs> Yes, exactly. No Nassim Hamed, our <laughs> Tank Davis. Whereas Nassim, he did come out to Thriller. When he fought Wayne McCulloch, he came out to Thriller or so something. So I he? remember the visuals very clearly of the uh, the gravestones and, and, and him just knocking them over. The part? You might be, you might not be. I just, I honestly can't tell you off the top of my head. I, I don't remember uh, whether yeah, he any, used Thriller. Yeah. If anything, Javante just looked a little bit embarrassed, as if he had right. absolutely no idea what the hell was going on. <laughs> like, this isn't Halloween. What's happening here? <laughs> right. The Walking Dead has sucked for the last couple of seasons, so... <laughs> That's what he was thinking it was. <laughs> All right. Hey, but eventually he got to the ring, and then he was out of it again. Um, yep. So let's look at that. Uh, Javante, as we said, stopping Hugo Ruiz in the first round. Um, as brief as we can try to be, it will still take a substantially longer to break down the fight than it took Davis to break down Ruiz. So despite all the talk about Tank's weight, he weighed in initially a couple of ounces over um, before weighing in at 129.8. Ruiz, as we talked about before, had been primarily at 118 and 122, was at 126 last month, then 130 for the first time. Was this a weight issue? Was this a size issue? Or was this just simply a case of Javante Davis being by far the quicker, stronger, and better man in the ring on Saturday night? Yes, and yes. Uh, yes to all questions. I, I mean, Davis was too good and too youthful and energetic and explosive, but the size thing certainly didn't help Ruiz's cause. Uh, Tank had a, a functional advantage of, of seven and a half pounds on fight night. 
I can't say for sure what role that played. Uh, I get the sense that it wasn't Davis's size that caused that punch to bust up Ruiz's nose. Um, Mm. But it's a little more likely that the one moment where uh, Davis walked into this one nice straight right hand from Ruiz mid-round, the size disparity may have helped a little bit to ensure that he not only walked into it, but walked right through it. But, you know... It really wasn't about size. Davis was using his jab and his speed, and he just walked Ruiz down and was in control all the way. And it was over quickly enough to suggest to me that the chasm in talent between these two fighters yeah. was just too great and, and that Davis would have blown him out at any size. Yeah, I think that's true, too. I mean, it was interesting. I have i don't think I've ever seen a person go down on a delay like that from a headshot. Right. At first, I assumed he'd gotten to the body because that was a classic body shot reaction, wasn't right. it? The way yep. that he kind of paused and went down. And, I, and I've certainly I'm struggling to think of when I've seen a good fighter. And Ruiz is a good fighter, even if he's not Javante Davis caliber. He is a good fighter. Essentially fold up his 10 after 90 seconds, which is essentially what he did. I mean, you know, uh, Jack Reese looked at him and asked him if he wanted to go on. And he clearly didn't. And, and like you said, you know, his nose got busted up. Um, you know, r- very early on, very clearly, it was Ruiz realized he was just in with something he hadn't experienced before. Um, was it so fast that we even were able to learn anything that we didn't already know about Davis? Do you think was this one of these things where you go, you're gonna go, oh my god, all these doubts I've had about him were wrong, or or, or can we just like? learn nothing from this i think we learned a couple things we learned that a 10-month layoff doesn't make him rusty (laughs) there was no slow start there um and we learned that he can deal with distractions you know that that struggling to make weight and having a late change of opponent and fighting in the cold outdoors he can stay focused on the task at hand and take care of business but that's about all i got uh from this you know from a technical perspective from a speed and power perspective I didn't see anything that I didn't already know. Did you? No. I mean, it was just, I was impressed with the fact that, yeah, exactly. He was able to just get in there and get down to business. I mean, when we we talked about this with Brian, when we saw him on the scales, I just didn't think physically he looked very good, irrespective of, of, of what he weighed. And maybe that's just the way he looks at, at, at weigh-ins, you know. But right. but he went straight in there and went about doing his business. Um you know, uh, yeah, like you said, even if it's a struggle for him to make 130, it certainly doesn't seem to affect him on fight night. The other thing, I've got to say, it has nothing to do with his fighting ability. Based on very little, our conversation with him on the podcast, watching him post-fight, well, actually even watching him with it being slightly embarrassed ring walk, and then the way he talked with Jim Gray afterwards, I kind of like the kid. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, and, and, and I'm predisposed to perhaps not like him because of who he associates with. Right. I, I've never been the biggest fan of Floyd Mayweather's personality. I've never been the biggest fan of Adrian Broner's personality. Gervonta Davis hangs out with those guys, but I, I'm with you. I, I'm developing a soft spot for him. Yeah, he seems he seems to be like like a, a generally kind of kind of nice guy. Um, it is clear though that we still and we talked about this before. <clears throat> that we do need to see him, I think, up against much stronger opposition to get a sense of where his real level is. Mm-hmm. Talking of which, so uh, get back to that uh, in-ring interview with Jim Gray afterwards. Uh, he says he wants to fight in his hometown of Baltimore next. Um, and even though he didn't seem to be aware of, of who that might be against or who the possibilities were when Jim suggested them to him, um, 
It looks as if uh, it might be the winner of the Edna Cherry-Ricardo Nunes fight, which is going to be on Showtime Championship Boxing on March the 2nd. Are you good with that as being his next step? And if he does, he said he wants to fight three or four times this year and not go 10 months without a fight again. Who else afterwards do you want to see him take on? So I'm thinking about the timing a little bit. You know, the winner of Cherry and Nunes would have to come out of it fairly clean if Davis is going Mm. to stay on a timeline to fight uh, against that winner in May or June. Uh, And honestly, neither of those guys excites me much. Um, You know, it'd be a classic case of uh, an alphabet mandatory where you're kind of asking yourself how this guy got to be ranked number one, which we've seen many times. I do like the idea of him fighting in Baltimore um, because it's drivable for me and and my ability to attend the fight should always be the foremost consideration. Um, Also, Baltimore in the late spring can be very nice. I can't Uh, believe you read my notes on this as well. It's just it's (laughs) insane. Was your next note going to be to reference the wire? Nope. I okay. want to take an Orioles game. Oh, all right. <laughs> you know, I've never been to Camden Yards, uh, Ah, sadly. well, there you go. There uh, you so, go. yeah, maybe this would be an opportunity. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was going to note that I finally got done <laughs> watching The Wire after dragging it out across 10 years. So I'll be able to uh, properly make McNulty and Bubs and Omar references on the podcast. Uh, although, you know what? That's not our network anymore. Never mind. Um, <laughs> but, uh, anyway, yeah, looking at the year Tank has ahead of him and the opponent's I definitely want to see him in, in one serious fight this year against a guy who's given a real chance to beat him. And, and that wasn't Ruiz, and it wouldn't be the Cherry Nunez winner, uh, and it also wouldn't be Tenshin Nasukawa, whose name Floyd mm-hmm. Mayweather apparently brought up after the fight. Uh, <laughs> come on, <laughs> let's not do that. Um, but uh, there are plenty of guys I do want to see Davis fight, including Miguel Burchelt, uh, who we'll have some news on that we'll be discussing later, uh, or Andrew Cancio, another guy we'll be talking about later on the podcast, or Tevin Farmer. Uh, that's a legit test, and it would draw in Baltimore, I would think, uh, since he's from Philly, not far away. Um, you so there's a ride with Tevin Farmer, right? Oh, that's a good idea. Ball. Yeah, we right? should carpool. Right? Save the planet a little bit. Why not? Ah. Uh, so there are absolutely fa- fights out there for Tank that I'm interested in. Uh, if, But, you know, if he does fight three or four times this year without taking on one of those names that I mentioned, I'll be pretty disappointed. Like, if, if his year is Hugo Ruiz, Edner right. Cherry, and Tenshin Nasakawa, that, 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 that doesn't cut it. Right. Right. Looks at notes. Uh, discussed. 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 <laughs> check, check it off. Check it off. All right. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm the same. I, I, you know, Cherry Nunes be a step up from who he's been fighting later lately. But yeah, I, I, I think he's that good that I want to see him up against those guys that you, you mentioned. He needs to be up against the really top caliber guys at 130, and there's a lot of good guys at 130 and thereabouts. That yeah, problem is so many of them are going to be so difficult to make. Uh, he's, he's going to be in a difficult, you know, position. Um. But yeah, uh, if if it is a Cherry Nunez uh, Baltimore Orioles doubleheader in the in the late spring early summer, that that will be a start. And uh, and but but then hopefully he does get the opportunity to step it up. Um, moving on in the co-main on Saturday, Mario Barrios dominated a, a definitely game. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard Zamora uh, stopping him in the fourth, uh, even though that meant we got bonus points. You and I both for not only getting the stoppage but the right round. Yep. 
any problems with that stoppage? I know you. I think you probably could have some problems with that stoppage. <laughs> you don't know me as well as you think you do. Ah, I, I, good. I had no problems at all. Okay. Uh, may, maybe I'm getting soft in my old age, but uh, I haven't found myself taking issue with the quickish stoppages lately. So far in 2019, it's been the not quick enough stoppages that have bothered me. Um, this fight was mostly one-sided from the start. Barrios outlanded Zamora 106 to 27 in total punches. Uh, Barrios looked a full weight class bigger than Zamora. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they didn't look like they were in the same weight class. Um, he hurt him with that right hand behind the ear early in the fourth, which kind of throws off the equilibrium. And, and from that point on, Zamora wasn't quite right. So even though he didn't take an official knockdown and was still trying and throwing punches, he was taking a drubbing. I, I thought the stoppage was certainly justifiable. And the fact that it helped us nail the exact round and come exactly. out looking like geniuses. Uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure that earns us both a pay increase. So we should look into that. But uh, you know, that, that never hurts. Exactly. Yeah, it was one of those deals where, you know, Zamora was super game. I mean, he really came, you know, not not to to lie down, to really put an effort in. And he was obviously very upset with the stoppage and he was trying incredibly hard. But it was clearly one of those deals where it was obvious that nothing he was doing to Barrios was affecting Barrios. And then every time by the end that Barrios hit him cleanly, it stiffened Zamora, didn't it? I mean, you could Mm -hmm. just tell. Um, That's the kind of stoppage that, in my mind, means that Zamora is going to be able to have more fights and earn more money and and hug his family and and do all of that. I I understand why he was unhappy with the stoppage, but good one as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's uh, those stoppages where a guy is still on his feet or whatever, and uh, and there's still something to be determined in the fight. Like I haven't if I haven't been convinced yet that one man is clearly superior to the other. Those are the ones that, that get on my nerves. This one, the outcome was not remotely in doubt. Indeed. Did we learn anything? Did we again similar question to the main event? Really, did we see enough to learn anything about Barrios? We, you and I had both discussed earlier that we didn't know very much about him. What did you pick up from that, if anything? I guess we learned a little more in four rounds uh, on Barrios than we did in in one round uh, on Davis. I really like the way he fires to the body. Um, yeah. When he got Zamora hurt in the fourth, he seemed to forget about the body for a moment. His first uh, fusillade after he had him hurt was all to the head. But then he remembered to go downstairs and it set up the finish and he landed some big body shots. I like his jab, too. I like his left uppercut. And he can take a punch, it seems, because Zamora landed one spectacular right hand to the jaw in round three and Barrios didn't blink. Um, so... You know, this fight didn't prove anything of great substance, but it was a good win. Um, And one other observation, Zamora's smile reminds me a little bit of Victor Ortiz. Watch for that next time. They have the same smile. That's my useless observation of the day right there. Or one one of several, perhaps. I have no idea what to do with that information. (laughs) You don't have to respond. You can just move right on. Okay, I think I'm going to. (laughs) Fair enough. I think I'm going to. (laughs) Um, the, The opener was uh well the opener was kind of ugly wasn't it i mean the yeah. co-main was was fun the 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 main event was brief and fun it was a bit scrappy it was a bit ugly there were booze uh javier fortuna scoring a decision win uh, and getting us more bonus points over sharif bogare look was this a case given that he you know he, he had the no contest in the previous fight and then the controversial lost the one before that for javier fortuna was this a case of just win just win and then we can get our career back on track Yes and no. Uh, a win is always better than a loss. Uh, you know, I don't think I'm breaking any new ground by saying that. Um, <laughs> yes, that's the one where the stove is uh, turned on to the absolute lowest setting, if it's turned on at all. Um, but 
you know, if, if Fortuna is setting his sights on big fights, if he wants to be calling out the yeah. likes of Lomachenko, if he wants to be the guy Tank Davis faces when he eventually moves up to lightweight, I don't think a close decision win in a fight yeah. that mostly wasn't a ton of fun to watch creates any demand for that. Um, the knockdown in round six, of course, really shouldn't have been a knockdown. Yep. Uh, so it really should have been a, a 96-94 fight. Crazy, by the way, that all three judges and Steve Farhood scored all 10 rounds the same. I, that oh. does not happen often. Um, you know, it happens in a 10 nothing kind of fight, but not right. in a 6-4 kind of fight. But a, a 6-4 win over uh, Bogare in a forgettable fight, you know, it's fine. It doesn't really move the needle. I remember Fortuna being a really exciting prospect, yep. scoring some spectacular wins on ESPN Friday Night Fights. He had maybe a hint of Yuriorkis Gamboa, you know, where he was he was yep. vulnerable but sensational. And he seems to have settled into the solid veteran role, which which I wouldn't have predicted when he was on the way up that that's where he was headed. But yeah, it was a win. It was fine. It doesn't excite. Yeah, and it feels like that happened very fast right you normally go from the prospect to the alphabet titleist slash you know top level challenger before you settle into that veteran mode he went straight from one to the other basically yeah. without stopping and um, that's a surprise and, and it was a bit weird to hear him like in the corner sort of between rounds at one point saying that he just didn't feel right um and to the extent that he even remembered afterwards specifically what round it was that he said he didn't feel right um right. i don't know that was it was strange he's got he got a w and if he's like if he'd won impressively he could have put himself back into contendership he's got to get another win i think before he can put himself back into contendership and um, bogare i don't know whether he just goes and waits six years for another shot there <laughs> I, I mean if you're gonna wait around that long for a meaningful challenge you've got to do better when you get that meaningful challenge i think yeah unless you know this is just kind of his his limit his level sure He's not really capable of, of doing much more than this but yeah certainly the one big fight every five or six years plan <laughs> isn't going to take you too far uh you know maybe maybe he's still uh competent five or six years from now but 10 or 12 years from now i don't think right. so so he's, <laughs> he's running out of time Right. Uh, on the streaming undercard that was on the Showtime Boxing Facebook page and the Showtime Sports YouTube channel, uh, a rough night for Ishe Smith and a statement win for Erickson Lubin. Uh, Ishe had never been stopped before. He'd only been dropped uh, by one opponent, Vanus Martirosian, uh, but he was floored four times by Lubin before being stopped in the third. He was just never in this contest. Um, is this a big statement win for Lubin? Does this put him right back into the 154-pound reckoning? Uh, you know, we, we can't know how much this had to do with Lubin being a beast versus how much it had to do with Ishe being 40. Um, Ishe, you know, he hit that wall where every time a glove touched him, he yep. seemed to flop around a bit. Um, but as you said, Lubin did become the first to stop Ishe in, in 40 fights. That's worth something. Uh, he got the rare 10-6 rounds. You don't see those often. Um, and he was both patient and and very effective about finishing Ishe off. Um, so, you know, it's all a matter of perspective for a guy two fights removed from a devastating first-round knockout loss. Uh, it was impressive stuff from Lubin. It tells me his confidence is fine. He is indeed a threat at 154. But I guess the question of his chin still remains. There was chatter before the loss to Charlo 
about him being chinny mm-hmm. in the gym, uh, and that loss seemed to support that chatter. So we won't know how serious a contender Lubin is until we see a real puncher land on him again. Um, yeah. But, you know, he, he's just 23. He's giving us every reason not to count him out. Uh, now, I know you used to be very close with Ishay, uh, so I imagine for you it wasn't so easy to focus on how, how well Lubin performed uh, as you watched this fight live. You were probably oh, a bit distracted. Yeah. It, yeah, it's rough to watch. Look, um, I, like you said, like, I, I, is a friend of mine. Um, we, we've only been in sporadic contact lately, but you know there was a period where we were, we were good buddies. Uh, I've known him since 2003. Um, it's a sign of how I feel about him that I actually voluntarily went to Detroit to watch him win the alphabet title. So... Mm. That's that's a friend right there. <laughs> I'm gonna get some hate mail from Michigan. Um, <laughs> you know, and and for Isha, it's funny. It's it's weird, isn't it? When you're at the stage that we are, where we see guys like go all the way from being prospects to being veterans to retiring. It's yeah. it's, a, it's a strange feeling, isn't it? And and Isha, it's been a strange and not always easy career. He was a Showbox alum. He 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 looked really good on Showbox a few times. In many ways, he was the standout star. I think of that first season of The Contender. Um, I remember him, we, he used to fight early on in Las Vegas uh, at a casino called the Orleans, which is just, just off the strip. I remember yeah, uh, sitting down with me one time going, hey man, I've got this idea, I've been pitched to do this reality boxing show. And I remember saying to him, that sounds like a stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> so... Well, never get career advice from Kira Mulvaney. If, if he'd listened to you, though, he would have avoided his first loss. In any well, case. true, true. Um, but he's also really been through the ring or outside the ring. Um, mm-hmm. He was legitimately suicidal a number of years ago, um, which is why he was so emotional when he won that title. Um, the mother of his children was murdered for in cold blood uh, a couple of years ago, um, just shot in the back of the head while she sat outside a department store. Um, it's been a rough ride for the dude, but he's a good guy. Uh, he announced uh, in a tweet to Kevin Ioli and I and myself afterward. Uh, Kevin and I used to, you know, watch him when he was fighting at the Orleans. That he's retiring. Uh, I wish him well. Um, one of the cool. things, though, I got to also finally say that I love about boxing. Uh, I don't know if you saw this. Ishay posted a video of Erickson going into his yes. locker room. Did you see that? Was I did. that not great or what? I, yeah. I mean, I just love that. You know, these guys have like been yapping at each other. Um, then the young kid goes in and beats the snot out of the older guy. And it made me think a lot of good things about Erickson Lubin, the fact that he went in there to Ishe's locker room and Ishe, the guy he's just beaten up, is giving him like veteran advice on how to approach his game and all of that. Gives him a big hug and says, man, I'm going to watch you. And he goes, God, this is a young person's game. You're the same age as my daughter. Um, <laughs> I, I just thought that was fantastic. That was all the things that are good about boxing. I thought that that little scene in Ishe's locker room. Yeah, absolutely. And and a quick note about one other uh, thing that, w- that was good here. Uh, Jack Reese, um, who did the right thing and stopped it after the round. It stands in contrast to the referee we talked about last week in the Teofimo Lopez-Diego Magdaleno fight, who uh, had a clear opportunity to stop it at the end of round six and didn't. Um, in years past, I was critical of Reese. I, I still don't like the way he handled the Andre Ward-Edwin Rodriguez fight. Um, but that's quite a few years ago now. I should probably let it go. I have to give him credit. Uh, he, he has emerged as one of the most reliable refs in the game. Yeah. 
All right, so we, we found a, a fair amount to talk about with that Showtime card, uh, but that wasn't the only boxing action on Saturday night. Uh, one other fight worthy of discussion. Down the road a bit in Indio, California, there was a significant upset atop a DAZN card in the same division in which Gervonta Davis competes. Alberto Machado, a big punching undefeated titleist from Puerto Rico, promoted by Miguel Cotto. He has Freddie Roach in his corner. He has all the connections you could ask for, but that wasn't enough against Andrew Cancio, who is one of the early frontrunners for Human Story of the Year in boxing. Right. Cancio came in with a record of 19-4-2. He retired in 2016 after a stoppage loss to Joseph Diaz Jr., but his kids convinced him to come back and give it one more shot, and he got off the deck in the first round to come back and stop Machado with body shots in the fourth. Uh, nothing against Machado, but this was boxing at its most heartwarming, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was not a good night for boxers that Kieran likes. Um, Alberto's <laughs> a favorite of mine also, and not just because he's a protege of Miguel Cotto. Squee! Um, yeah, look, after that first round, he just wasn't in the contest, was he? If I didn't know going in, like, what the backgrounds were of the two fighters, the way that Cancio just tore into Machado, I would think that he was the hot-rated up-and-coming prospect slash contender. I mean, he just... It was like being knocked down just woke something up in him, and he just mm. tore into Machado, didn't he, after that? Um, really good to head and body, uh, just constantly, um, just just not giving Machado a chance to even, like, breathe. And, and I'm not sure that Alberto ever really re- recovered. He landed a really good left hook to the jaw in the second round that sort of started yeah. the rot, and I don't think that Machado ever fully recovered from that because he just didn't, didn't give him the chance. So... Um, yeah, very, uh, very, very impressed, actually. A very good performance from Kancio. And you could see what it meant to him. Huh? You could yes. see the emotion afterwards like that he'd been through the ring. I mean, first of all, who gets knocked out by Jojo Diaz? I love Jojo Diaz. <laughs> right. Fabulous fighter. But he, you know, so, you know. Right. To, to Stop, stoppages are not, are not his thing, typically. Uh, so, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and to bounce back from that. And I love the fact that, you know, it was his kids who said, come on, dad, like, keep going. And, uh, and he's got a day job. And yes. apparently he gets he gets Monday off. <laughs> yep, that was that was a great response in in the in ring <laughs> interview afterwards. You going back to work on Monday? No, they gave me Monday off, which is fabulous. Yeah. Um. So yeah, good. I want to see more of him. Absolutely. On the basis of this, and as for Machado, he said after he just felt weak and maybe he needs to move up to one thirty five. Uh, he's a tall guy for the weight. Yeah. Maybe he does. Uh, yeah. he, he certainly was was suffering in there. Yeah. By the way, did you did you notice the shirtless guy in the crowd celebrating? I don't, I don't I did know. Not. I did yeah, not. there was in the group of Cancio's like friends and family. One guy had his shirt off and it just stood out to me because we get shirtless guys at football games and soccer games and hot summer baseball games. Not too often at boxing matches. I don't have any deep analysis. I just found it amusing. But you're just full of the not hot takes, not warm takes, just takes off off the beaten path takes. Yes, off that's the, beaten path. That's the theme of this uh, episode need- for me. If we see Victor Ortiz shirtless in the boxing crowd, you're just going to like have full bingo going on. There. Well, I can always just watch the advertisement for Face Lube. I knew I, it was coming. Yeah, yep, you set me up perfectly. I knew it was coming. All right. God, let's move on. Um, okay. Hey, so we touched on this last week. Let's look at a couple of bits of news items. Um, we did touch on this last week, but things appear to have solidified. Although I'm not sure solidified is the right word for at least one of these guys uh, in the interim. <laughs> and literally the biggest news of the week, it appears that uh, Jarrell Big Baby Miller is all set to take on Anthony Joshua. Uh, looks like uh, June 1st, I think, at Madison Square Garden. 
No surprises here. As we said, we talked about it last week. Uh, Miller has for weeks been considered the front runner for this opportunity. Joshua has given strong indications for a while that he's ready to come to the to the U.S. Um, first time fighting outside the U.K. for Joshua, and he's up against the local in Brooklyn's Big Baby. Um, and he's up against Joshua's a very charismatic guy, but he's actually up against mm. the guy who might out-talk him in the, uh, the build-up if that happens. Uh, Eric, as a consequence of that, do you think this fight could sell out the garden? And what is your, and this is an appropriate uh, adjective here, gut reaction, shall we say, <laughs> uh, to Miller being a challenger to the guy that a lot of people still rank as the number one heavyweight in the world. Um, as far as the potential for a sellout, look, Canelo versus Rocky Fielding drew 20,112, <laughs> almost a sellout. So it's very possible between the British fans flying over, the American fans curious to see Joshua, and the local big baby fans. I would expect it to at least come close, uh, especially if it's preceded by a great fight in the rematch between Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder. That'll get the public excitement for a heavyweight yep. fight extra revved up and, and maybe help, help push this fight to a sellout. As for Miller as a challenger, he's fine. Um, he was the best available American. Uh, you know, if that's a criteria for Joshua's U.S. debut, Um I consider Dillian White more deserving and, and a little bit more of a threat, but Big Baby makes perfect sense. He will sell the hell out of this fight, as you alluded to, with his ability to talk. Um, I give him almost no chance to win, yeah. but I can't knock the fight at all, uh, which might sound like a weird thing to say, but yeah. boxing is a weird sport. Uh, mismatches are part of the game. Uh, this is, to me, a bit of a mismatch, but one that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I agree 100%. There is like that elite level of you know three or four guys um most of whom we've mentioned you could maybe throw a dillian white in there too um and then there's another very good level but that good level is substantially below that top level of the joshua's right. and the wilders and the furies isn't it and and yeah absolutely perfectly fine fight um i i think miller's a fine fighter but joshua eats him up but this is a good event uh, uh, and a perf you know given the way that things are playing out with uh, Wilder and Fury about to face off against each other and uh, and White apparently pursuing other business for now. Uh, yeah, this is as good a fight as could be made. Uh, and it'll be entertaining. The event certainly will be entertaining. Yeah. All right, so one fight is coming together. Another is coming apart. Uh, junior lightweight titleist Miguel Burchelt injured his right hand, and that has forced a postponement of his scheduled March 23rd rematch with Francisco Vargas. They're talking about aiming to get the fight back on the schedule for May. This struck me from the moment it was announced as one of those rematches. It's fine. I have nothing against it, but there wasn't really any demand for a rematch. The first fight wasn't that great or that close or at all controversial. Do you see it the same way, or, or is this a fight you were really looking forward to? You know, it's funny. When you first sort of hinted that when we were sort of doing our prep for this, at first my thought was, Eric be crazy. <laughs> um so but, your your thoughts are not grammatically uh structured uh, appropriately okay. interesting Ex exactly exactly because okay. you speak are... well but just in I your know. brain it doesn't it goes uh... through a filter okay a, on, the, on the way there's a kind of like translation software that got <laughs> uploaded that's very that's very good people don't realize i'm actually from little rock people don't realize that there's also an accent software that goes yeah, nice. so interesting, interesting little bit of information for you there that I kind of snuck out. Um, no, um, and then I went back and I looked because I was ringside for the Burchelt Vargas fight, and I went back and uh, and I read my ringside report, and it it's interesting. I think because I've been I've seen so many good, exciting Burchelt fights, and I've, and there've been so many 
exciting Vargas fights. You and mm-hmm. I were inside for a great Vargas fight. Right, right. Um, that I just assumed that the two of them together had made a great fight. And actually, it was a good fight. You're right. It wasn't a great fight. It was a very bloody fight. Yes. Um, but it wasn't necessarily a great fight. And I'd be perfectly happy seeing it again. And, and it was interesting. Yeah, I just obviously my memory had been a little bit confused. It was fine. It was yep. fine. Uh, I, I would, and I am actually, in fact, in the same position as you. I would be perfectly happy to see it. One thing is, I think, if, if anyone has suffered a little bit, I think, from HBO getting out of boxing, it's Miguel Burchell. Um, yeah. HBO was really pushing him, mm-hmm. was giving him some great matchups and great exposure. And then from the time that they started to lose interest or, or, or pull back you know, to actually fully getting out, we haven't seen very much of Miguel Pachel. He hasn't been in really great, exciting matchups. And he needs to get back on. He had a great momentum going there. And 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 I think this would, the rematch would be a great fight, a great opportunity for him to regain that momentum. He needs to be, once again, up against... Again, we've talked about this already in this podcast. There are some great, great matchups at 130 pounds. And we talked about it a lot when we were discussing Burchell and other guys when we had the HBO podcast. There's lots of great matchups there. He's gone off the boil a little bit through no fault of his own. And, and whether it's this or whether it's another one, I, I would, I just want to see Miguel Burchell back on that horse and, um, and, and, and getting in that mix again. Yeah, hopefully that handle heal quickly. Yes, indeed. Um, let's move along to some... Really, really sad news. Um, two-time former 130-pound champion Rocky Lockridge died last week at the age of 60, just 60, mm-hmm. due to complications uh, from a series of strokes and pneumonia. Uh, he fought from 1978 to 1992, compiled a record of 44 and 9 with 36 KOs. And of those nine losses, a lot of them were against significantly good, I mean, really good opposition. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Almost all of them just close decision losses, including just the majority decision loss to Julio Cesar Chavez when Chavez was was a beast. Yep. Uh, a majority decision to Alfredo Gomez, split decision to Eusebio Pedroza, all of those guys Hall of Famers. Um, maybe if Lockridge had gotten a couple of those decisions, he'd be considered kind of Stoda worthy himself. Um, Eric, uh, you and I, we're a couple of gray hairs, but even by our standards, you know, we joined the, we joined the boxing beat after his career was over. Um, we may not be the two best people in the world to eulogize him. This is where we want Steve Harhood, actually, right. <laughs> um, absolutely, to tell us uh, all about, or, or indeed Barry, tell us all yeah. about Rocky Lockridge. But uh, anything that you would like to say about Rocky Lockridge? So I didn't realize until he died that Lockridge was living somewhat local to me. Uh, he's originally from Tacoma, Washington, but spent his later years in Camden, New Jersey, which, if you're familiar at all with Camden, tells you something about his financial condition. Uh-huh. Um, but in terms of his career, he beat several good fighters. There were all, all the close losses you mentioned, but he beat the likes of Cornelius Boza Edwards, Roger Mayweather, uh, which was a first-round knockout. Blast him. Yeah, to win his first belt. Um, also, uh, Harold the Shadow Knight, who was an unbeaten prospect at the time, oh. and Lockridge beat him, and he never fought again. Um, Lockridge, however, is oddly more famous in most circles for becoming yeah. an internet meme. Uh, look up Best Cry Ever. And it'll turn right up. Lockridge's appearance on A&E's intervention where his son tells him he loves him and Rocky lets out a wail that sounds like no cry you've ever heard before. It's weird, but that is probably a bigger part of his global legacy than his boxing career. But this is a boxing podcast. So here we pay tribute to a guy who had a heck of a career and really might have a Hall of Fame case if a couple of close decisions had gone his way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Now some news that might be perceived as sad by some 
Uh, Marcos Maidana is planning to return to the ring. Apparently, he announced it in a social media video released to some Spanish language outlets in which he was sitting in a bubble bath. God, I love Marcos Maidana. Uh, the, the, the most famous person with the initials MM to sit in a bubble bath since Mike Myers doing the Simon skits on Saturday Night Live. Nice. I wonder if Maidana likes to do draw rings. Uh, but I digress, as I have done many times on this podcast. Uh, as we know, Maidana is a long way from 147 pounds. Uh, so uh, there's a ways to go before we'll know for sure that his return to the ring is indeed happening. Um, he's reportedly signing with PBC, and already there's talk of a big money fight with Manny Pacquiao. Let's say Maidana does fight again. Uh, he was one of those rare fighters who left on a high note. He was only 31 years old at the time of his competitive rematch loss to Floyd Mayweather. He's 35 now. If he is indeed fighting again, Kieran, does that bum you out, or are you looking forward to having El Chino back in the ring? I am not. Um, okay. uh, while I am massively impressed with the style of his comeback announcement, and which has really just <laughs> set the bar for all kind of announcements, um, the way in which he did that, it sort of epitomized why I would be happy for him to stay retired. Not because... He was not doing well in the ring when he when he retired. I mean, you've already touched on how well he was doing right up until the end. But because nobody, to my mind, had done retirement as well as Marcus Maidana. I mean, he just went straight into fat and happy, like with yep. no with no pause whatsoever. Every time we saw him, you know, whether it was in person or in social media posts or, or whatever, there he was, very fat, very happy, cigar <laughs> in hand. Uh, just, just living the dream. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just so when you see somebody who's apparently that content, you want them to be that content and to remain that way. Obviously there's an itch to scratch and, mm -hmm. and I get that. And especially because, as you mentioned, he left on top, you know, he, he beat Adrian Bronner, had two great fights with Floyd Mayweather. And then he was, then he was done. Um, clearly feels that, you know, his business isn't done and he wants to come back for more. Gosh, he, I think he said he wants to be back in the summer. I can't. He's going to have to like get some tips from Tyson Fury or something yeah. about how you lose 100 pounds in a couple of months. Because, yeah, he's, he's not a cruiserweight right now, I think. Um, so I will say this. I wish he would stay retired. Perhaps he will. But I'm glad that he signed with PBC because that means we'll be covering him. Right. And when he does come back. I might mutter and I might grumble and I might say, gosh, Marcus, I wish you were retired, but I'm going to want to be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, a, a couple of things. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and admit now that uh, I am currently podcasting while in the bubble bath. Uh, I, should, <laughs> I should just come out with it. Um, as for... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, I should I I should have had a rubber ducky to squeeze and prove uh, that I am in the bubble bath, uh, but uh, alas, I do not. Um, so I'm never making it to episode ten. I'm amazed <laughs> we've made it to episode nine after our run on Friday night, but this is it. This is the end. There's 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 no mention of load watch on this uh, podcast. Well, now there is. Well, there oh, wasn't. Well. <laughs> well. Um, but you know, yeah, I mean, you're you sort of expressed some mixed feelings uh, about his return and. Yeah, I think this is one that I kind of want to wait to Monday morning quarterback it a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, I'm uh, my my 
instant reaction is to be kind of anti for the very reason that, that you said that he seems uh, so happy. But, you know, if if he comes back and kicks a little ass and, and makes some more money without embarrassing himself, uh, I would retroactively, I would absolutely sign <laughs> off on that. Right. Um, one last piece of news before we get to this coming weekend's fight. Uh, Showtime has picked up the James DeGale-Chris Eubank Jr. fight taking place in London on February 23rd and will also air, and I'm really in, in, intrigued by this, the Joe Joyce Bermain Stavern uh, heavyweight bout on that card. Uh, we'll dig much deeper into this doubleheader next week, but what is your top-line reaction to that, Eric? First reaction is that it's a really good card that I'm glad is being picked up on US TV, and I'm not just saying that because it's Showtime that picked it up. That's that's really how I feel. DeGale Eubank is close to a toss-up. Uh, I looked it up. Uh, Eubank is a minus 140 favorite. DeGale a plus 120 underdog, so that averages out to you know 1.3 to one, almost even money. Uh, and Joyce versus Stavern, despite how bad Stavern looked in the Wilder rematch. On paper, it's a huge step up for a prospect with only seven fights. So well done, Steven Espinoza. Much like the white Chisora pickup in December, this is this is a strong move to grab a worthy UK fight card. Yep, absolutely. All right, turning our attention to the fights coming up this weekend. On Friday at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, we have a showbox doubleheader from Mulvane, Kansas. Not Mulvaney, but Mulvane. One letter short. I'm, I'm right. looking forward to an eventual showbox card from... Raskin, Montana. <laughs> yeah, you, you could you could tell more or less what my punchline was going to be. Um, anyway, uh, this is a doubleheader featuring four fighters with a combined record of 70 and one with one no contest. We open with 122 pound British prospect Thomas Ward making his U.S. debut against Jesse Angel Hernandez. And then in the main event, a battle of unbeatens, 15 and 0, Shojahon Ergashev of Uzbekistan. Nice. I, I had to take it slow, but I got through it. Uh, he meets 19-0 Michael Fox. I don't know if his middle initial is J, uh, but he does have some family ties. He's the younger brother nice. of Alantes Fox, who also nice. fought on Showbox, making the Fox Boys the ninth brother team to compete on Showbox. And we also remember Alantes well from his failed step up against Demetrius Andrade on HBO. Uh, Ergashev fought on Showbox once before. He stopped Sonny Fredrickson in three rounds a little over a year ago. Uh, you also saw him on a couple of off-TV Daniel Jacobs undercards. Uh, he's an aggressive southpaw, but Fox is a southpaw as well. And like his brother, he's outrageously tall and thin, a 140-pounder who's nearly six foot four. Kieran, what do you make of this style matchup? Well, this is just like a great clash of styles. Um, you already touched on this. Like we talked last week about Mario Barrios being tall for a 140-pounder at whatever he was, 5'11 or something right. like that. But 6'4? <laughs> <laughs> it's just insane. Yeah. Um, uh, so, look, Fox, this is not going to shock anybody. But Fox, like his brother, is someone who is going to look to keep his opponent at range. Right. Shockingly for a six, four hundred and forty pounder. <laughs> he, he's, he's a boxer. Um, but Ergashev is a full on destroyer. Uh, he's a real pressure fighter. Uh, 14 KOs and nine of them have come in the first round. Um, and here's the thing to know about him. Right. So, yeah, as we know, it's, it's an important part of a boxer's makeup as to what his nickname is. You know, whether it's the problem or money <laughs> or Pac-Man or six heads or the executioner, whatever. This guy's nickname is Descendant of Tamerlane. And you might think to yourself, 
Well, Sir Tamerlane. I'll <laughs> yeah. tell you. It's a Mongol warrior from the 14th century ah. who massacred thousands of people. According, This is what it says about him, according to Wikipedia, uh, via our Showtime VP, Gordon Hall, who does this kind of research for us. <laughs> this is what it says. Wherever he went, he brought about destruction, massacres, burning, looting, and dishonor to women. That is the <laughs> guy that this man models himself after. I'm scared. <laughs> yeah, that, that is a frightening person to willingly associate yourself with. <laughs> right. So that, so that gives you an idea. So that's, uh, he is uh, an out-and-out -out destroyer. He's likely to come flying out of the box. Um, we will see what happens there and what Fox can do with him. Uh, before he became a pro, he was a, had a, like a lot of these guys in the former Soviet Union, a really extensive amateur record, 202 and 14 as an amateur, four-time national champion in Uzbekistan. So to you, does he look like yet another of this conveyor belt of really strong Eastern European, Central European uh, champions? What do you think his upside is? Yeah, the, the onslaught of destroyers from that part of the it's world amazing, just huh? doesn't slow down. The <laughs> conveyor belt was the perfect image to put with it. Uh, yeah, from what I've seen, the upside is high. He looks elite or at least close to it. Uh, Ergachev is promoted by former fighter Dmitry Salida, trained by Javon Sugar Hill, the nephew of Emmanuel Stewart. He's got some good people in his corner there. I, I rewatched the Sonny Fredrickson fight on, uh, on Showbox the other day. It was stopped a little early for my liking by ref Benji Estevez, but that aside, it was all one-way traffic. He was really beating Fredrickson up, and Fredrickson was an un unbeaten prospect himself. Looking at Ergachev from a technical point of view, his greatest strength is also kind of his weakness. Uh, he has a vicious left hand. That's his power hand. And his jab is used quite, uh, quite a bit as a measuring tool just to set it up. But as good as that left hand is... I wonder if he's a bit of a one-handed fighter, sort of like the young mm. Manny Pacquiao. Um, mm. So if he's going to prove to be a truly elite prospect, I'd like to see his right hand develop more, unless this is just a case of him having a good right hand already and just not needing it to succeed mm. at, at this level. So that's mm. something uh, that I, I'm looking for in this fight to see if he, he integrates the right hand a little more. Okay. In the co-feature, uh, Thomas Ward versus Jesse Angel Hernandez, we have a fighter in Hernandez who turned some heads back in 2017 with two upset wins on Showbox, uh, although the second of those wins against Ernesto Garza got voided when Hernandez tested positive for a banned substance afterward. Uh, fun fact about Hernandez, he's the youngest of 15 kids. <laughs> Good Lord. So he probably knows a little something about getting overlooked, wow. and he, he appears to be the B-side here. Uh, Ward is the highly touted prospect coming over the pond to fight, but he is not a big puncher by any stretch. Only four knockouts in 25 wins. Kieran, what, what are you hearing about Ward, uh, who has a nice-looking record but hasn't stepped up much yet? Uh, yeah, oh, I think it just basically sums it up from what I know. Um, okay. He is a very good boxer who has basically no punch to speak of. He scored a stoppage win in his pro debut uh, and has just gotten three stoppages in 24 since. He's already been 10 rounds three times, hmm. um, despite the fact that he's you know only 24. Um, good ring generalship, good movement, good basic boxing skills, and good boxing genes. His elder brother, Martin, is the British and Commonwealth bantamweight champion. Um, so, Hernandez... 
Um, he's got a much more aggressive style than Ward, but he's going to need it if he's going to have any success against Ward. Uh, he's going to have to find Ward first. I mean, the guy has really good ring movement, and it's going to Hernandez is going to have to find him and trap him if he's going to have any chance whatsoever. The longer this fight goes on, the more that you've got to figure that Ward is going to win this. This has distance fight written all over it. Okay, so let's make our predictions just for the main event, uh, and I'll uh, quickly uh, sum up where we stand points-wise going into this. Uh, we each got 10 points for the week, which is not bad at all Did for we? three fights. Yeah, wow. we each got a, a three, a five, and a two. Uh, so the score now is 18 to 16. Uh, I'm in the lead by just those same two points. Um, and it's my turn to go first with this one. Uh, maybe Michael Fox is better than his brother, um, or maybe <laughs> no matter what happens here, he'll get in his DeLorean and keep redoing the fight until he wins. Uh, but seriously, I I can't get Alantes Fox's performance against Andrade out of my head. Yeah, he, he just wasn't able to compete at that level. I think Ergashev looks to be a level above Fox, and my hunch is that Fox won't have that next gear, gear he needs. And, you know, if I'm underselling him because of his brother, then I guess that's on me, and, and he'll have to prove me wrong. Um, his height certainly could cause some problems, so I, I don't see a quick, easy blowout here. I'm going to say it takes some time to wear Fox down. My pick is Ergashev, TKO8. Okay, slightly different here. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think that the physicality of Fox, I think we'll probably see Ergashev come flying out of the blocks. Um, and look to try and take him out early. Uh, but I just think it's just awfully hard to take out uh, a six foot four, 140 pound guy with like limbs all over the place early. I suspect we'll see Fox probably trying to tie him up early, and that'll be a little bit difficult. And he and and Agashev probably is going to have to try to figure some stuff out um, as as how to break him down. The height is an advantage for Fox, but it's also a disadvantage. That's a lot of body to hit. That's a lot of body for a very yeah. hard-hitting, aggressive guy. And I think that's probably what's going to wear him down. And eventually, Fox just isn't going to be able to get out of the way. I am going to go for a stoppage win for Agashev in the sixth round. All right. Okay, a few other fights as well on the schedule this week. Uh, on ESPN on Friday from Hinkley, Minnesota, Rob Brandt makes the first defense of the belt. He won in a huge upset. I had absolutely no expectation that he would beat Ryota Murata last October, and he did. He absolutely dominated him. Um, he takes on Kasef Baisangrov, I think. Yeah, well, I'll right. buy it. Seems reasonable we'll to that. me. Yeah, we'll go with that. And on Saturday night on Fox from Los Angeles, California, it is the evergreen Leo Santa Cruz against Rafael Rivera and Omar Figueroa against the almost evergreen John Molina. Uh, any yeah. of those fights jump out at you? Yeah, the, the one that jumps out as a can't-miss action fight is Figueroa and Molina. Yeah. Uh, I've long been suspicious of Figueroa as a prospect. He has two decision wins on his record that I think he was mildly fortunate to get. But I have no doubts about his ability to entertain. He hits and gets hit, and the same is true of Molina. Right. And this isn't going to be the kind of style matchup that's going to prevent Molina from letting his hands go. We've seen that yep. on a few occasions. This isn't that kind of fight. I'm not confident that Molina has much left at age 36, but if he does, if he has a little something in the tank, this is going to be a war. Yeah, He's another one where it's just like, how the hell was he 36 all of a sudden? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to think too hard about what that says about what age we must be. Right, exactly. But yeah, remember him coming up and... Uh... 
you know, he may not have hit the heights that perhaps he thought he would, but he had a couple of good uh, uh, title opportunities there and certainly some cracking fights. Um, so, yeah, definitely I'm with you on that one. All right, that will do it for this week. We will be back in one week with post-fight analysis of the Showbox card and more in-depth look ahead at that DeGale Eubank card. Until then, thank you very much for listening.